Well, good morning. It's really a blessing to have each and every one of you here this morning. Um, it, it blesses me. I'm glad that every one of you are here, including those that are watching online. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that uh, when we do baptisms in December. Um, those of you who weren't here, I, I talked about that in one of my sermons not too long ago. And so uh, I'm dedicated to making sure that that's not just any normal, boring baptism day. We're going to make sure that there's some excitement that day. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. But I'm also looking forward to continuing our study in the parables of Jesus this morning, uh, which brings us to Matthew chapter 25. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles there, uh, I am going to read that, just not quite yet, but you can be ready. I'm excited about that. But uh, before we read that passage, I want to know if you've ever heard of the term debilitating fear. Yeah, another word for a debilitating fear is a phobia, right? A phobia. And it's an overwhelming, crippling fear that can just completely stop you in your tracks. It can be like wearing a straitjacket if you give in to it, right? And we're all familiar with phobias, some more than others. Lots of people have claustrophobia, which is the fear of tight and confined spaces, and so you take someone with claustrophobia and give them a task to do and then lock them in a small closet and see how productive they are. Not very. Acrophobia is the fear of heights. Take two baseball players with acrophobia, tell them to play catch 20 feet apart, no problem. Put them 20 feet apart, 200 feet in the air, and all of a sudden they forget how to throw and catch a baseball. We uh, also have social phobias like FOMO, the fear of missing out. That's one of the newer ones. And then there's other fringe phobias like xanthophobia, which is fear of the color yellow. You think that could limit your pro productivity a little bit? People with that fear avoid yellow at all costs. That would make day-to-day -day life pretty hard. Or how about optophobia? The fear of opening your eyes. You think that could make life hard? <laughs> or, I'm sure you've all heard of this one. I like this one. Hippopotamonstrosequipdaliophobia. Um, you all know what that is. Oh, I love this. It's the fear of long words. <laughs> and I, I really, uh, I'll end with this one. It may be my favorite. I don't know. Phobophobia. Which is the fear of having a phobia. My point here is that fear limits productivity. It gets in the way. And now some people would counter with, well, actually fear is a great motivator. To which I would disagree. Fear can be a motivator for sure, but it's not a great one. Especially not in the long run. And I don't just say that as an opinion, it's, it's really biblical. And we're, we're continuing our study of the parables of Jesus this morning with a story highlighting a man whose fear kept him from being productive. This man was afraid of the judgment of his master. 
He was the third servant in what is commonly referred to as the parable of the talents, which is in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And I'm going to read that now. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you... You gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I I know you. You're a, a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you you have what is yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talents from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. God, we just fall before you right now asking for you to be present in in us. God, if there is anything, anything inside of us right now that would keep us from hearing the truth and the challenge of this passage, we pray that you would take it away. God, we gather together this morning because we are, we love each other here and we want to help each other be more like Christ. And this passage will help us do that. And so we welcome whatever it is you have for us. God, I pray that we would welcome it. And that you would change our minds, change our hearts, change our lives this morning. Don't let us walk away exactly the same as we were when we walked in. We ask for that. We beg you for that. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, this parable is recorded right after the parable of the ten virgins. That actually Pastor Toby preached on not long ago. And uh, that parable was about being watchful and prepared for the second coming of Christ. And it doesn't seem a 
coincidence that these two stories were told in succession. I really appreciated what J.C. Ryle said about these parables, and it was Douglas O'Donnell that, that quoted him. He said, The parable of the talents is very like that of the ten virgins. Both direct our minds to the same important event, the second coming of Christ. Both bring before us the same people, the members of the professing church of Christ. The virgins and the servants are one and the same people, but the, very, but the same people regarded from a different point and viewed on different sides. The practical lesson of each parable is the main point of difference. Vigilance is the keynote of the first parable, diligence that of the second. And this is a good summary sentence right here. The story of the, ten, of the virgins calls on the church to watch. The story of the talents calls on the church to work. And so if the parable of the ten virgins emphasizes being watchful for Christ's coming, the parable of the talents tells us what we're supposed to do in the meantime, right? Which is pretty important. You know, obviously we don't read the parable of the ten virgins and think, well, we're just supposed to sit around waiting, doing nothing. That wasn't the point of that story. That's why we have this story. What are we supposed to do? And, and that's important. Like if, if you were in a, an employee at a company and I told you, get ready, the CEO is coming to your office. You'd be like, uh, what do I need to do to get ready? What does he want? And that's what this story is all about. It tells us what our master wants. And, and really, it's kind of simple. He wants multiplication. He wants us to be faithful with the opportunities and responsibilities he gives us. So just to be clear, the master in the parable represents Christ. The servants represent professing Christians. Now, and I say professing Christians because we find out later on that one of them, the third, was false because he didn't actually know and love his master the way that he said he did, and he was thrown into hell. And we'll talk a little bit more later about how and why that happened, but what about the talents? What, are, what do those represent? A lot of times people confuse them as representing abilities, right? Even, even as English speakers, we see the word talent and we automatically start thinking like, oh, you know, it's related to talents the way that we think about it. But in the story, the talents were money and they represent responsibilities that God gives us for his kingdom. And that could include money. It certainly does. It, it includes jobs and relationships and conversations and passions, all kinds of things. Random opportunities that we have, but they do not represent abilities themselves because when we read verse 15, we see that they were given based on ability. It says, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. So he's not giving them abilities in this story. He's giving them responsibilities. And the expectation from the master would be that his servants would leverage what they were given to produce more. In essence, he was expecting them to do what Christ commanded his disciples to do before he left earth, which according to Matthew 28 was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus was consistent in his teaching and his expectations from his followers. He said it explicitly before he left the earth in Matthew 28, and he even says it through a story right here. Jesus expects his servants to multiply. 
But multiplying does not mean that we are all given equal responsibility, that we all have the same abilities, or that he expects us to compete with one another so that he gets the same return on his investment. We notice in verses 21 through 23 that the master told the first two servants the same thing. He said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. He didn't say, well done, good and gifted servant. He didn't say, well done, good and talented servant. It was good and faithful servant. And he didn't rebuke the second one for not bringing back five more talents like the first one did. Because he wasn't expecting that. He wasn't expecting the same return. He was just expecting them to be faithful. And the third servant didn't receive as the same amount of talents that the first two did, but he had the same opportunity to be faithful. And there's no excuse for not being faithful, though he sure tries to come up with one. Rather than working for his master, he buried his responsibility and did nothing with it. And then his master came back and it was time to give an account. And here's what he said. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're you're a harsh man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. The dude literally tries to blame his master for his laziness. He took what he was given, buried a hole, and put it in the ground, and tried to say that his master's character was the problem. And did you notice the reason he gave for his inaction? Fear. He said, I was afraid. What was he afraid of? He thought to himself, well, what if I lose it? You know, what if I mess this up? He didn't want to risk anything. It would be risky to invest it. It would. It would be risky even to give it to the so-called bankers back then because those systems weren't the secure ones that we're used to now. Basically, he didn't want the responsibility. He was scared of messing it up. And if I were his master, I would be like, then why did I give it to you? Like, I could have kept it myself. What good are you? Which kind of is what he was told. But we have to be careful not to do the same thing. Because we often find ourselves saying, well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not right for, for this ministry opportunity or for this relationship. I, I don't know. I, I think I'll just mess it up. Which I picture God being like, well, why did I give it to you? But still, when we dig deeper, we think even further about this. His fear wasn't really about messing up. That wasn't the source of his fear. He wouldn't have been afraid if he didn't view his master so poorly. He viewed his master as someone harsh, greedy, and unforgiving. Like I said earlier, if the CEO was coming to your office, how you react to that news depends greatly on whether you fear the CEO or if you love the CEO. The first two servants loved their master. The third did not. The first two were motivated by fear, and the third was, or the first two were motivated by love, and the third was motivated by fear, and that fear crippled him. 
And his, here's the thing about it. His fear only even existed because he had an incorrect view of his master. He reminds me a little bit of, of people who like to use uh, God's sovereignty as an excuse to not obey Jesus' commands. And they say things like, well, God doesn't need me. He'll do what he wants with or without me. I've encountered people like this. One in particular I was talking with, we were talking about making disciples, and I knew what he was going to say. And you know what he said? He said, well, only God can make disciples. And I'm like, well, okay, I get where you're coming from, right? Like, yeah, I, we can't save anybody. God is the harvester. That's not our role. But then what the heck was Jesus doing when he told all of his followers for the rest of eternity to go and make disciples? And when I'm having this discussion, I always like to ask the question, well, who makes babies? Well, there's a couple routes you could go there, right? You could say, well, moms and dad make babies. Or you could say, God, which one is right? They both are. With only the exception of Jesus and Adam and Eve, every human being has been made by God and a human mother and father. Even Jesus had a mother. You know, God could make babies himself. He does not need us. Yeah, technically he does not need us for that. But that is how he has chosen to work. And it's the same way with disciples. He could just make disciples himself with or without us, but that is not how he has chosen to do it. We are a part of the process. And that's what the talents are for. Whatever it is God has given you, he's given it so that you can make multiplying disciples. Right, like, like so much of a pastor's job sometimes is just trying to convince people that call themselves Christians that their life purpose is actually to glorify God and their mission is to make disciples. I mean, if you want to know what it feels like sometimes, imagine being a coach of a football team. And you have practice after practice after practice. And you give pregame speeches and postgame speeches and halftime speeches and timeout speeches. And you meet individually with players to work on their game. And you do everything that you can to prepare them for game day. And then this happens. Well, years ago, we talked to Tom Moore, then at Indianapolis, the offensive coordinator. You got a busted play here. And then oh, no. and Sanchez gets hit. The ball is loose, and it's alive. I have never seen this before in my life. Watch this. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. This is what Reggie White used to do to people, forklift them and just lift them off the ground. Mark Sanchez not expecting it. And it was the backside of Brandon Moore. One of the worst plays in NFL history. <laughs> now, I, I'm not using that illustration as a way to say this is how it always is or, or to be mean or anything like that. That's not the point at all. And, of course, we know that coaches make mistakes too. Absolutely. But what I want you to understand is why I keep talking about our purpose to glorify God and our mission to make disciples over and over and over again. Because if we don't get that right, then nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how many people are sitting in these seats or how many people are watching online or how many poor people we feed or how much money we give. Nothing else matters if we don't get that right. It is the rock upon which we build. So if you feel like I keep singing the same song, it's because I want the 
words, rhythms, and beats of that song to be stuck in your head until you die. I want it to be the song in your heart every morning when you wake up and every night when you go to bed. And I will keep singing that song and beating that drum until I feel like it's all locked inside of us, driving everything that we do. And even if I get to that point, I'm going to keep singing it because I have to sing it to myself every day or I run the risk of possibly getting a different song stuck in my head. Are you awake this morning? My shirt's blue. My passion is red. Anytime I forget my purpose and mission in life, I bury what God has given me in the ground. Those valuable things that my master has given me sit there and they do nothing and they go nowhere. Fear crippled this third servant. It kept him from being productive for his master. I've never heard anybody say that they have a debilitating love of someone. Right? I've never heard someone say, oh, I have this crippling love for my boss that keeps me from being productive. I don't hear husbands out there being like, oh, I, I just love my wife so much, I won't do anything for her. No, if you love your master, you leverage the responsibilities and opportunities he gives you. If you fear him, then you just aim for the status quo, right? Your only goal is to not mess up, which is messing up. Like this, the first two servants wanted to please their master, but the third wasn't concerned about pleasing his master. He was only concerned about not displeasing his master. And there's a, there's a difference of the heart there. The first two servants, well, that's, I mean, well, that's the irony in the story, right? I mean, it's such an ironic story, right? Because this guy didn't know or love his master, which led him to fear his judgment, which caused him to bury his talents, which then brought his master's judgment. And maybe you fear God that way, but I do want to comfort you by saying that you don't have to. It is based on a lie from Satan. Look at 1 John four sixteen through 18 It says, And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Now you might think, well, but I thought the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. It is. But we also need to understand different kinds of fear and different times for them. The fear of God's judgment on my soul is necessary to bring me to my realization that I need Christ. It needs to bring me to repentance. But once I have repented, put my trust in Christ and chosen to follow him, there is no more condemnation for me. I respect God greatly, but I have no fear of his judgment on my soul anymore. 
David Allen put it this way, There is one fear that all who are without Christ should have, and all who know Christ should never have. Fear of judgment. So we need to rid ourselves of these lies that keep us fearfully complacent. I also love what David Jackman had to say about this. I couldn't have said it better myself. He said, If our parents withheld love as a means of conditioning or disciplining us, or if we never had the security of knowing that nothing could shake their love, we can easily regard God with a mixture of fear and gratitude, always wondering when the blow will fall. But that is not love. How many Christians are caught up in this web of fear? Often they are the most sensitive and lonely people, but they live in the anticipation of some calamity being visited upon them as judgment for their past sins or retribution for not making more progress in holy living. And the result is usually paralysis. They imagine that God is waiting with a big stick to beat them every time they fail. They preconditioned themselves to do just that. Not surprisingly, the devil is all too ready to pile in with his accusations and whisper that they cannot expect God to spend any more time on such hopeless, useless specimens. Church, the third servant never knew, understood, or loved his master because of bad theology. He had an incorrect view of his master, which led him to hell. You see, he wasn't foundationally thrown into hell because he didn't work. His real foundational heart problem was that he didn't, know, he didn't work because he did not know or love his master. When you love your master, you work for him. If you love God, you will work for him. If you understand God correctly, you will love him. And if you don't think theology is important, you better wake up because it kills people. But where does this story leave us? Each Christian has been given responsibilities and opportunities for God's kingdom based on our abilities. We don't all have the same abilities, but we all have the same opportunity to be faithful. And our abilities will increase as we are faithful our abilities and responsibilities will increase. Michael Green hit this point well. He said there's a fascinating parallel between spiritual and natural laws. If we develop our muscles, our reward is that we can carry heavier burdens and still still feel good to those who have more is given. And if we lie in bed and do nothing, atrophy takes over and we find that we can do less and less. We lose even the pathetic muscles we once had. It is like that in the spiritual realm. I've said this to a lot of people. If you don't use it, you lose it. If you don't use your muscles, you lose your muscles. If you don't use your mind, you lose your mind. That's a warning for anyone who's retired out there. (laughs) Leslie and I learned French when we were in West Africa. And I'll tell you, if you don't use your second language, you lose your second language. Don't you dare ask me to speak French anymore. But I really want you to understand this. Church, if we don't use our opportunities for Christ and his kingdom, we lose our opportunities for Christ and his kingdom. 
If you wonder why some people's influence for God and their opportunities and their responsibilities for his kingdom seem to be growing while yours are withering away, then it might be because for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. When we lose those opportunities, we might not ever have them again. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. We have to make the most of the time. We don't get days back. And we don't know when our days will end. I really hope you're listening when I say this, church. We will not get 2020 back. We have responsibilities for God's kingdom. You have opportunities for God. And if you think that things are going to magically change and go back to normal anytime soon, I wouldn't bet on it. And as soon as this virus comes through, you know what can happen? As soon as it's done, another one could come right in. And it could be worse. As soon as you get your vaccination, you get into a car accident or die of a heart attack or whatever. What are you going to present to your master for this time? The present is the only guarantee that we have. Now, I'm not saying that we need to pretend like like the pandemic doesn't exist. I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect the virus. I'm saying that no matter what pandemic comes our way, whether it be COVID-19 or the Black Plague, we still have work to do. It might not look the same, but it has to be done. It might be done with social distancing. It might be done with masks. It might be done with video calls, telephone calls, text messages, online messages. But it still has to be done. There is no retirement from ministry. There's no vacation from our purpose and mission. There's no heavenly stimulus package that excuses spiritual laziness. Are you awake? The status quo is not why our master has given us our life. David Platt relayed what D.A. Carson said. He said, it's not enough for Jesus' followers to hang in there and wait for the end. They must see themselves as servants who improve what their master entrusts to them. Failure to do so proves they cannot really be valued as disciples at all. And then David added the question, will you be commended for your love or condemned for your laziness? Now I have to finish this. I mean, there's there's more that could be said, but it's not absolutely necessary. If you've lived your life complacent for the Lord out of fear of messing up, it's time to reevaluate your view of God. It might even be necessary to evaluate whether you know or love him at all. But we need to consider why, why did God choose to give you what he's given you? Because the rest of us, we don't have your friends. We don't live in your neighborhood. We don't have your family. We don't work where you work. God has given you unique responsibilities and opportunities. Complacency for fear of messing up is like telling God that he messed up by choosing you. And he doesn't mess up. 
And if you've wasted most of 2020, I implore you to stop and reevaluate. Changing the how of accomplishing our purpose and mission can be okay. But changing whether we do it or not is not an option. Our boss has given us a job. Now, he's given us some freedom in how we can go about accomplishing that job, but he hasn't given us the freedom to just stop doing it. But remember, we will not be effective if our motivation is fear. If that's your motivation, then that's not going to be effective, not in the long run. If we love our master enough, we will get to work. Not because we're afraid not to, but because our love is so great that we are compelled to. And we serve a good, good master who wants to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. That was the real reward all along. And one day we could be called faithful and enter into our master's joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Jesus, and all of those that you inspired to write down these words, Lord, what would we do without them? They are, this is the book that gives us life. And I pray that we would read it like that. I pray that we would treat it like that. I pray that we would obey it like that. And God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to get away from the lies that Satan tries to scheme us with. I pray that we would have the right view of you. I pray that our motivation would be love. And that you would help us to help each other. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.